This is the Beyond Mission podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. This year we're exploring all the New Testament except the Gospels. Last year we did a look at the life of Jesus with the four Gospels, and this year we're doing the rest of it, looking at the book of Acts and the other books of the New Testament as they intersect with the book of Acts. So last time we were in the book of Acts, we were in the city of Corinth, and now we're looking at first and second Corinthians. Let's do a little reminder here. Corinth was about 50 miles west of Athens. Everybody knows the city of Athens for all of its fame. Corinth became an important hub of trade because of its geographical positioning. And it also became a very important place for Greek god and goddess worship. They had a temple to Apollo and Poseidon and Kore and Asclepius, as well as the temple to Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love and lust and passion and pleasure and sensuality and sexuality. And some believe there were as many as 1,000 temple prostitutes. The number might be debated, but to me, that's almost irrelevant. If you have one temple prostitute, that's probably too many um, if you're going to have a place of worship. And so to have one or a hundred or a thousand is is kind of crazy. So Ben, today we're going to take a look a little deeper. We're going to look at chapter four and maybe a little bit of uh, some other parts of Second Corinthians. We'll see how, how time goes. But I want to start out in chapter four that really kind of helps us think about what's going on in this Corinthian culture. These people who had become followers of Jesus still lived in that city that I just described. It was a city which, which was corrupt in what we'd say by at least Christian standards, and they allowed human sexuality and sacrifice of, of animals and the use of blood of the animals that were, that were given to these pagan false gods to kind of guide their daily life. And it was a very difficult place to be a Christian. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, let me just read a bit of that, and we'll have a little bit of a discussion. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. Now, there you go. There's some shameful ways, some secret ways, and he says renounce them. We do not use deception, he goes on, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4 is a big one. The God of this age, small g God, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's a rich passage. 
I think let's just take a look at some pieces of it. And, and the one, the, the God of this age, the evil one, Satan, the one who is trying to draw us away from the true God who created the heavens and the earth and gave us life and meaning, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's an interesting passage to me, and I want to just kind of unpack that a little bit as, as well as some of the rest of this as you see fit. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you make of this, like believers and unbelievers and the blinding that happens so that people cannot see? Because it wasn't like these folks in Corinth, a small group of people, I'm sure, who had become believers suddenly revolutionized the city of Corinth and they were they weren't like tearing down their temples and and sending the prostitutes away it still took place in their culture and and so they were living this life in that culture sometimes struggling with it sometimes enjoying the fruits of their culture so to speak the the passions of that and they were corrected along the way as Paul wrote them already in 1 Corinthians but he's he's kind of looking here and saying, there's this light world, this darkness world. Jesus brings light in this darkness, but the world, the worldliness, the God of this world, Satan himself, keeps people from seeing the light, blinds them. So here, here we go. We're getting into it, right? Because uh, you come from a bit different background than I do. I don't know if that makes any <laughs> sense or not. Like who, who's in charge of who being blind as much as, as much as like, what, what do you see taking place here with Paul? Yeah. I, I believe like when we look at, at Paul's words and kind of the contrast between the believer and the non-believer, the non, the non-believer being so culturally conditioned by the things of this world that their hearts have become hardened to the gospel message that that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And so, yes, you know, the, the God of this world, Satan, uh, in, in, in nurturing the, their cultural context and the non-believers giving themselves over to uh, the culture and over to their environment, which becomes ultimately... Uh, the, the fleshly longings uh, that they are uh, engaged in, whether that be sexual immorality or a hundred other things that uh, were present within uh, Corinth. The one thing that I do see relative to the follower of Jesus Christ, these are people who are marginalized in Corinth. These are people with no social capital whatsoever. They're not, they're not going to ultimately change the the moral framework of Corinth. And Paul has called them, and I think this is a word to every believer across time, no matter where it is that we exist, no matter the cultural context, Paul calls them to be a light into the darkness. And so not to give themselves to the cultural conditioning around them, but to give themselves to Christ, to abide in Christ, to seek to be an ambassador for his kingdom ethic in the world as they go forth to bear witness to Jesus Christ, which means they are not going to give themselves to uh, the, the things that are prized culturally, but they're going to give themselves fully 
to Jesus Christ, to ultimately be the light that Christ has called them to be. And so in that, you know, oftentimes I, I talk about how we are called as the body of Christ to be a kingdom outpost in this world. And this is what Paul is calling this small body of believers in Corinth to be, to be a kingdom outpost, to be a light to God's kingdom ethic as they go forward to bear witness to Jesus Christ. It's a tough thing to do in any culture. And we, we think of ours today, wherever you're listening, your community, your culture, your nation has its own issues. And some of those will run contrary to the gospel. And it, it's always a hard thing, I think, to live in that culture. And, and, and the question becomes, do, is our goal to, in some ways, impact it? And may, maybe that's too lofty to think about changing the entire culture. And, but, but it's not too lofty to think about being part of the change in a person's life who is immersed in that culture. And, and reminding ourselves that the, the God of this age blinds people. That doesn't stop us from pre- presenting Jesus as the Savior and Lord of our lives and hopefully of their lives. So I, it, it's almost like it's, I, I'm thinking like a, it's a daunting task, yes, but I don't want to say it's an impossible one because. T- to not get discouraged that the world is still the world. And I've been in ministry now for, I'm in my 38th year, and it's not like America has gotten better. But I don't know that it's gotten worse. It just is. And it's not like more people have embraced Christianity or more rejecting it. I mean, the stats would show that people aren't going to church as much, but you know what I'm driving at here? It's like still do be faithful and 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 try to win people to Christ and bring them along, but don't get down in the dumps when not everybody's buying it, and certainly not not society at large. Yeah, and last week we talked about the nature of Christ's resurrection and how it redeems our understanding of suffering in this world. It also, I think, in, in some ways redeems our version or our understanding of what success is in this world. If the resurrection is true, then, you know, as a follower of Christ, things are going to be okay. And if the resurrection is true, then my life should reflect the joy of God's kingdom. That's a part of God's kingdom ethic is this being perfected in love and joy and peace and patience and our hearts being ripened by the spirit to reflect Jesus Christ, which then adds oomph to our, to our gospel witness. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, which will be context for the sermon, but in 2 Corinthians 5, when, we, when Paul talks about how the love of Christ compels us, if it's the love of Christ that compels us, then our lives should be reflective of that love. If we are exhibiting the love of Christ in this world, it's going to give us opportunity to bear witness to Christ. As we radiate the presence and the work of Christ in our life, it's going to give us opportunity to bear witness to Christ. In that, though, we need to make sure that we are not being culturally conditioned. 
And I think that that's one of the aspects of, as we read through 2 Corinthians, as we read through 1 Corinthians, there are certain things that Christians will look at um, on the whole and be like, that's bad, that's wrong. There are other things that we easily become blinded to because we have, in essence, fused them with our theological understanding. One of those things is, you know, whatever political tribe we fall into, there are aspects of political ideology that sometimes get blended in to our relationship with Jesus Christ to where then we all of a sudden lack the humility to see that the darkness in our own life. You know, when, when I find uh, brothers and sisters in Christ throwing shade or providing cover for sinful behavior of a given politician that we align ourselves with, that's not the way of Jesus Christ. That is us living in darkness rather than us humbly abiding in Christ's kingdom, being informed by the love and the truth of Jesus Christ, that we would be the light in the world, that people would understand, oh, the Lord of this guy's life isn't a particular politician or particular political party. The Lord of this person's life is Jesus. He, he's being the stranger and alien that Christ has called us to be uh, in this world. Yeah, Paul, Paul seems to be continually saying in these writings that we've been studying, it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Take our, your eyes off of us. Put your eyes on right. Jesus. That's what matters. In this very next verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he, used, he switches metaphors, which he does rapidly all the time, but he switches metaphors from light and now looks at a jar. And he says, we have this treasure, that's the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God's glory, all that kind of stuff. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That's an interesting metaphor that a jar of clay, you, you drop it once, bye-bye, right? And, and it's, it's broken, it's, it's shattered. And I think, he's, I think he's saying here to turn attention off of us and put it onto God, because he even describes that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So don't don't look at me. Even you know, even if we have the things you were just describing, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, or we have the gifts of the Spirit being displayed in our lives, or we have so much more, and that the grace of God's all over us, and people can see that. The point is made over and over in Scripture. Don't have people say, look at me, look at me. Everyone should be saying, look at God, look at God. He goes on to say in verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. I, I think that's a, a powerful passage. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus. The, the human body, the body of Christ, I think maybe both of those are being talked about to a degree here, but that we carry that around. That we, We've seen where it says that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate Christ's death until he comes again. And I don't want to forget that Jesus died for my sins, and it was him alone. Verse 11 picks us up. For we who are alive are always being given over to death 
for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So he's got like a lot of metaphors. There's light, there's jars, there's the, there's death in our bodies. There's a lot that going on. And what, what, do, you, what do you see that's, that he's driving at with all these different images that he's giving to, to the Corinthian people to encourage them and challenge them in this second letter, which we know is probably the fourth letter that he's written to them. Yeah, I think the big thing is that uh, just this infinite hope, and when we think about biblical hope, it's, it's certainty, it's not wishful thinking, but this hope that we have in Christ, this certainty that we have in Christ to where Paul can say, you know, we're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not uh, in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. And in carrying Christ with us, we have this eternal hope that guides our life. And, and to your point that you made earlier, to where we're going to live then uh, to make much of Jesus Christ, that our identity is going to be fixed, not in a denomination, not in a church body, but our identity is going to be fixed in Christ. And right. it's going to be him that we seek to honor. It's going to be God that we seek to glorify uh, with our lives. Uh, and so that, that we humbly then submit ourselves fully to Christ. And we allow, we allow Christ, we allow the Spirit to move within us, to examine our hearts, to change and to transform our hearts, that we would submit those areas of, of sin, those areas uh, to, uh, to the transforming work of Christ, that we would uh, truly then reveal Christ in this world, that we would truly be that light into the darkness as we seek to, to bear witness to the one true light that has uh, illuminated our lives. Yeah, that's a really good word. That, that really is. But I'm going to kind of transition a little bit to chapter 7. Yep, we're skipping over 5 and 6. And Ben, you made a point earlier that your sermon uh, is on chapter 5. And so th- those who are listening, if you really want to get the, a more full picture of what we're going through this year, just listen to the sermons as well as the daily devotions as well as these podcasts. and even in that, we're not covering every verse. It's not doable in a one-year period. However, let's just skip over to chapter 7. There's a, a theme that I want to pick up on in this, and it, it kind of ties in, I believe, but it's about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll just pick it up at verse 8, and it, and it picks up a little bit on last week's talk and a little bit on this week. Verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now here's the the past the verse I I want to focus in on godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. What do you think? Like how, how can we identify the difference between godly sorrow 
and worldly sorrow, first of all in our own lives and then also as we are ministering to other people. Yeah, I think that that godly sorrow uh, emerges from, as I've shared before, but uh, emerges from abiding in Jesus Christ, becoming more sensitive to the will and desire of God for our lives as the Spirit communicates those things to us through our engagement with the Word. But Paul in Ephesians 4 talks about grieving the Spirit and our sin, uh, the, the acts of offense against God should grieve the heart of the follower of Christ. It's one of those things that testifies to us that we are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, that we grieve our sin, that we have sorrow over our sin, sorrow over the things in our life that are not aligned with God. Because at the end of the day, our deepest desire is to glorify God with our lives. When we think of worldly sorrow, a lot of times that worldly sorrow, as I read this, it's more conditioned on the self. And like something happens in our life that affects us that we grieve. So, you know, the loss of a job, whatever it might be that we are affected by materially, physically, mentally, emotionally, those are the things that we tend uh, to grieve because of the impact on what we perceive as our overall well-being. For the follower of Christ, our, overwell, our overall well-being is linked to our growth in Christ-likeness because that should be the hunger of our heart. And so the thing that we're going to grieve most in this life are those things that are not aligned with Jesus Christ. So simply put, godly sorrow comes when I recognize that I am out of alignment with God's best for me, worldly sorrow comes when I realize I'm out of alignment with what I perceive as my best for me. Yeah, that's the way. I just made that up. That's pretty good. That's right? really, really Doug, good. Highlight that somehow. Yeah, you're very yeah. succinct. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't. I mean, because I, 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 the, the phrases are they're so close, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and then we we don't define them a lot. But okay, to to get to the place of godly sorrow, you mentioned something about spending time in, in the Word of God um, or, or being challenged by God's Word. I can't remember exactly how you said it, but it made my mind take off and race. Are you talking about daily reading Scripture and reflecting on it on our own? Are you talking about time spent in prayer, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, accountability with other brothers and sisters, what what is it that are some best practices to help us recognize when our lives are out of alignment with God's best for us? All all of the above. Yeah, yeah. Which I know is where you're you're headed. Well, with that. I mean, I mean uh, but yeah, are there some ones that are like top list yeah, for you? All all of the above for for me personally. Part of it's the way that I'm wired. Um, you know, I, I begin my day typically. I begin my days and. Part of it is. Part of it is the the prayer as I go to engage God's word uh, is that the spirit would uh, illuminate my heart, my mind to the things in my life that are not aligned with God's word to make those things known and that the spirit would move to bring me into alignment with God's word. And so it's it's the all of the above because, you know, there are times in life as a pastor when I've been greeted by somebody who tells me that they prayed for, you know, for X, Y, or Z, and this is the way God led them. 
And there are those moments when they make those comments to me, and it's clearly not the way that God has led them because it's in contradiction to the word itself. And so an extreme illustration, but it's an easy illustration, is that I've had someone come to me years and years and years and years and years ago, but came to me and I knew that the person was engaged in infidelity. You could tell in the midst of the marriage counseling, they were engaged in infidelity. So after marriage counseling, I scheduled an appointment with the one spouse, met with the person and confronted them on it. And their response to me was they confessed to it. And then they said, I've prayed about this and I believe this is where God has led me. Well, clearly God had not led them into an affair. Clearly. And so that's where, again, it's not simply the idea of, I'm just going to pray about this from a a sentimental standpoint, and I'm going to use the, I prayed about this to placate my own heart so that I can go and engage and live life however I want to go ahead and engage and live life. Because God is not going to contradict his word, the spirit that has given root and power and guidance to to the word itself, the spirit is not going to contradict himself. And so, you know, again, it is the all of the above. And to be able to engage the word, to be able to engage life with other brothers and sisters in Christ, who in, in those communities, we can be vulnerable with one another and open with one another. I can share the idols of my heart with those brothers and sisters in Christ that I know that they themselves can be praying for me, that my life would grow in alignment. Uh, with Jesus Christ. These are the things that we want to give ourselves to because at the end of the day, the whole of our life in Christ is to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is priority number one, and then everything else will fall into place under that. Yeah, if we, if we go in looking for confirmation bias for uh, our ways that are out of alignment with God, we're going to find it. We're going to find it. In, you know, We're going to contextualize Scripture somehow for our own world or our own prayer life or even surrounding ourselves with what we call a small group or an accountability group or a Sunday school class that ends up agreeing with us because they like us rather, rather than the truth of God in our life. I, I, this, let me wrap this up because he talks about this godly sorrow. And then in verse 11, or in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, goes on to say, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Here's the result of godly sorrow. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. This has been a really, I think, a helpful discussion, at least for the two of us, to be able to have, and and hopefully for the listeners as well, as we think about what it means to be authentic people in the world, that we're, we're jars of clay, that we're nothing really. It's focus on God. And that when we are honest with ourselves, that honesty can lead us to places of not just godly sorrow, 
but he calls he calls it sorrow that led to repentance, that leads to repentance. And that repentance draws us nearer and nearer to the heart of God. And it seems to me that's that's the main point that we want to take away today. Well, next time, Ben, we're going to finish our journey through the book of 2 Corinthians. Yes, folks, there's 13 chapters. We're not going to cover it all in three podcasts. So we encourage you to spend some time reading deeply yourselves. If you want to follow along, go to our website or find our our app and get the Be On Mission link. And if you do that, you can get a daily reading. We're covering every single word of the book of Acts through Revelation. Until we meet again, we pray that you will spend some time in the Word of God, and as God convicts you, you will act on it in your life as as we pledge to do the same. Until next time, may God bless all of you.